Olympic medalist and Tour de France podium finisher, Coach Bobby Julik, and Outskirts visionary Gus Morton invite you to put your socks on. From insightful analysis into our sport's most iconic races and racers to entertaining, educational, and actionable advice, Fizzo is an illuminating deep dive into the art and science of bike racing. Be prepared to put your socks on. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Put Your Socks On. My name is Bobby Julik, and as always, my trusted wingman, Gus Morton. How you doing today, Gus? What a race. Man, I'm really well, Bobby, and what a race. That is, uh, that's bike racing at its finest. The, whoever came up with that course today is a master, an absolute master. So that's given us a great show. Uh, and today, we're going to be talking in the general theme, uh, soigneurs, the unsung heroes of cycling. And uh, yeah, it's going to be a, a fantastic show. But before we get into that, I'm going to give you like a, a bit of a lay of the land where we were at today and what was happening. There's one thing I want to note at the head of the show, actually, was that uh, this morning the UCI released a survey um, for fans of cycling to fill out. Basically, um, I guess they're asking, you know, the fans to kind of say what they want to see in cycling and and, uh, and and what they think the future of the sport should look like, which is good. I think it was a good thing. I filled out the survey. I encourage any all of our listeners to do the same. I still I still don't think the UCI are uh, quite on the right track there, but this is definitely a step in the right direction. So welcome. It's a welcome uh, a welcome addition. On to today. Today is a day was a day for the grazer. It was it's, it was a tricky stage with a steady stream of snacks but no main meals. So it was, uh, there was nearly as much altitude gain today as there was uh, in the mountain stage to La Planche de Belle, but there was no major mountains. So yeah, on the pedals all day, up and down, and a total, um, I guess, like mixed bag. It could have gone either way. You know, there were some sprinters there that were wanting to, 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 to punch it out, and then there was also uh, some climbers that were wanting to do it. So yeah, open slather. 200 Ks. From Masson to Saint-Étienne, as you said yesterday, Bobby, that finishing town is a um, quite a tight little run-in. So it was uh, it was an exciting little tricky finish coming in there. Seven climbs, the last of which was a Cat three at twelve point five k to go, and then there was also like a sneaky uncategorized one with about three k to go as well, which uh, proved to be quite decisive in the finish there. Um, Nineteen eighty-five, Lucio Herrera won into Saint-Étienne. Bloody faced. Uh, Bernard Hinault also fractured his nose in the same stage and crossed the line bloody with the bloody yellow jersey as well. So it was a pretty, uh, that was a pretty iconic day, one of the most iconic images, I think, of the Tour de France over the years. Centre team has had the finish 25 times. And a uh, little side note, it's nicknamed the Internet City. So there you go. If you want to go uh, download today's stage, you're going to be able to have a, an easy time of it in Centre team, I presume. Bobby, Jeez. you're a wine Jeez. fan, and you've 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 well, been. Well, yeah. I have quite a few buddies that are really big into wine, and they're drip feeding me some information that uh, I'd love to share with the the listeners. You know, Macon is one of the great white wine towns of Burgundy, and the center of the Macanay wine region. They passed today quite a few famous places, uh, famous vineyards, uh, one being the Fouli Fousse. 
I don't know if I pronounced that correctly. Sounds good That's to the me. most well-known AOC of the region. And AOC is Appellation d'Origine Contrôlée. It basically says it's, it's the real deal. Um, they also kind of came into Beaujolais, which is home to the greatest gamay in the world. They went through right through Romache Torrens, which is home to Georges de Boeuf, the Beaujolais producer, like the Beaujolais producer. He's a legend in the region and, and all around the world. And just beginning, uh, just before getting to Romanesh, they passed the Saint. They passed by Saint Amour, and then through Chenas, two of the ten crew villages of Beaujolais. The other two they passed throughout the day was uh, Ville Morgan and Regigny Dorette, and those two towns are obviously Morgan and Dorette. So yeah, just a little interesting stuff. I mean, we see the the images on TV of these beautiful vineyards. And yeah, I just think it adds a little bit to know what sort of wine the staff and yeah, I don't think the riders are drinking much wine at, at night, but the, the local fans and local people are actually consuming. So there you go. Yeah. And maybe there will be one or two riders uh, from Lotto Sudal, maybe having a glass of that tonight in celebration. But before we get to that, Bobby, we have a little bit of uh, sponsor info. Yes, it's that time again for the today's daily dose of road id tour trivia to play head on over to roadid.com slash tour de france so today's question the tour de france started outside of france for the first time in which city go to roadid.com slash tdf to answer this question and score a chance to win today's daily prize which is a gopro hero 7 black one lucky winner will even take home a $10,000 BMC shopping spree. Again, that's roadid.com slash TDF. Bobby, today was a day for someone who was hungry. You had to really want the win today because it was a brutal course. And I think coming into the stage and, and looking at the Tour de France, everybody knew today would be a brutal stage. Like as I, as I mentioned in the lay of the land, there was no kind of iconic features no mountains or anything to really like you know definitively mark the race but it was just up and down all day and uh as a rider like those are the always the hardest stages because they just drain you you've got to be paying attention twisty windy so anyway that that it made for a fantastic day for us sitting here on the couch watching give us uh give us a rundown bobby yeah, stage eight, Macon de Saint-Antienne, 199 kilometers with a little extra 7.3 kilometer neutral start there. Um, yeah, this is this is the region where it's it's just dead roads. And when I mean dead roads, it's just really kind of rough pavement, small roads. We saw some of those climbs today. It looked like, wait, is that a two-lane road or is that a one-lane goat path? Yeah. Um, it, so... Yeah, uh, but but before I start, I kind of want to um, go back and and say something a bit on on a sad note. Back in the 2003 Paris Nice, Andre Kivilev actually crashed and and died on a stage that finished to Saint Antienne. Um, this was a very difficult day for me because I was right behind the crash and actually had to go up on my front wheel to keep from hitting. The rider who, as I looked down in an almost an inverted position, I saw was was Kiwi, and I knew right away that something wasn't wasn't right. 
and um, I won't go into the details, but um, I, I believe he expired right then and there in front of my eyes, despite what what they did to try to revive him. Mm. So yeah, that was a, a terrible day, terrible day. And I was teammates on Team Telecom with Alexander Vinokurov. I was rooming with him that night as well. And these two were brothers. You know, Kazakhstan back in the day had very little support, very little money compared to now, obviously. They're in the Tour de France. And these, these two guys were, were unseparable. And they actually started their career on an amateur team down in Saint Etienne. And that was just so difficult for, for mm. all the riders in the Peloton. And I remember it was at the base of a climb, so it was a little pinch point before the climb started. And I started going after I got around the crash, but I, w- I was just in a fog. I could not concentrate. I, all I could think about was Kivalev and, and Vino and, and what this meant to their families because they, they lived in the Nice area. They were neighbors of mine. And about 8K later, like halfway up this climb or almost at the top of the climb, I kind of had to snap back into it and say, Bobby, you know, you got you to gotta get your head back in the game here. But so, yeah, that was a very terrible situation. Mm. And the way that Vinokurov dealt with that, um, because throughout the night, like I said, I was rooming with him. He was getting updates. No, Kiwi's fine. Kiwi's fine. Yeah, his wife just called me. But in the morning, it was confirmed that, that he had passed. And he went out, we were in the bus, he went out outside of the bus, sat under this tree, and, and you could tell he just bawled his eyes out for about 20 minutes. So we were sitting there in the bus wondering, hey, are we even going to start the race today? You know, is, is this, is, is it over? And just to tell you how strong mentally Vinokurov is, he walked into the bus, he, he dried his eyes, and he said, now I must win this race for Kivi." And sure enough, he, he came through with the goods and he wound up winning Perry-Nice. Uh, on, a, on a positive note from this terrible story was that this was what the UCI, this, this was the final straw with the helmet thing. Mm. After this, the UCI implemented the mandatory helmet rule, which I think has saved many, many more lives yeah. since that moment. So I hate to start off on, on such a kind of morbid uh, topic, but I think it was worth saying because it really has did help change our sport for the better, which is, you know, obviously wearing your helmet. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, you, you mentioned that this is a seven, seven categorized day, seven categorized climb day with tons of what you call snacks. Yes. I I'm very, I'm very, (laughs) you mentioned this during the tour of California, but I think for our listeners now, can you describe what you mean by snacks? Because you have a very interesting <laughs> way of categorizing the climbs instead of just Cat 4, Cat 3, Cat 2, Cat 1, horse category. Can you give us a brief uh, description of yeah. not only snacks, but what that means? Well, so snacks are like, they're just uh, in, in the, you know, snacks. It's like a snack. You just It's what you would have just to top up the, the hunger, just to satisfy you a little bit. But... Uh, but, you know, if you have too many snacks, they add up and, and they can spoil your day, right? And so, yeah, so snacks are uh, just the small climbs that most of the time, you know, one of them, it's fine, can handle it. Um, but two, three, four, five, six, seven, you start to get a bit over it, right? And so they're just the small climbs. They're not major, but they add up is basically, uh, you know, they're not a full meal. 
for example, like a category one full meal. And then you've got cat twos kind of like, yeah, light lunch. And then you've got your, you know, like, uh, well, like, you know, Galibia or something like that. You're looking at like a bit of a degustation, you know, like a multiple course kind of settling in for the evening type type deal there. So today was a day of snacks. We had no big ones, but there were, uh, there were plenty of them. So yeah, if you hear me referring to snacks in the future, you know that uh, okay. you, can, thank you, for, you can never do it. Thank you for clearing that up. Thank <laughs> you for clearing that up. So onto the stage. It was a, it was a hard start. The guys went right from the gun. Uh, we had Terpstra, Ben King, Go USA, mm-hmm. and and Thomas DeGent in that initial move. And then there was another rider that honestly was not more than 25 meters off the back of that group, and that was Mads Wirtz uh, from from Katusha Albacene, right? Yeah. And even on the coverage, they said that they included him in the breakaway, that he was there. And man, that... Poor Mads. I, being 25 meters off the back of that group and not being able to close that last bit, man, that, that was just rude. That was straight up rude. But when those first three guys are going full tilt on the front, they're not really worried about, hey, is this guy on our wheel or not? But you had to feel for him. You, you really did. Being that close and then having to take the walk of shame or the ride of shame back to the peloton, Mads, Mads, Man, great, great job. Don't hang your head. That was just a very, very unfortunate uh, incident there. That was uh, my ultimate fear racing was like you would get halfway across to the break and you're like, big mistake. (laughs) You're like, I can't make it. And then you've got to do exactly that. You just have to be like, you know, sulk back to the bunch. And you know, as a bunch comes back past you, they're just like, idiot. <laughs> I've done that before. Yeah, and then and, and and then what was even more impressive after seeing that was Alexandro DeMarchi making mm-hmm. a solo bridge. So he was obviously flying to be able to do that, but you have to wonder, you know, what that took out of him to get up there. And once they got up there, they started cooperating really well. They did have, you know, the the climbs to come. So uh, you know, first they they went through that that sprint line. That was uh, taken by Tepstra, who took a little uncontested sprint. But interesting, Viviani took the sprint for fifth place over Sagan and Matthews and Cabrelli. So obviously not much change there. Mm. Then digging into the climbs, you know, one after another, DeGent just started taking all the points in, in front of ben, ben King. So he he did that on the, the first second category at kilometer 51, the second kilometer, uh, second category climb at kilometer 71 the third at 84 and yeah the 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 breakaway was holding on what about three and a half to four minutes this whole time yeah and then over the category three DeGent takes the points again it's down to about three minutes the the next category two there was that's where at 133 kilometers there was a little upage of pace by DeGent and DeMarkey and unfortunately they dropped our American hero Ben King and and um, Tepstra. and uh, and Tepstra. Tepstra looked like he was, you know, holding back a little bit. There was that moment where you thought they would be able to catch back on the descent, but no. Those two guys just said, "Okay, this is this is our chance to get rid of the other two guys." So DeGent took Colum, uh, the KOM number five in front of Demarkey. It kind of ballooned back up to four minutes, but then all of a sudden you could feel the race starting to switch. Right, Astana and Ineos were more to the front. Um, that was where on the descent, DeMarkey actually overcooked a turn and luckily was able to hold it up. But 
created a little gap between him and DeGent. And right then and there, I was thinking, man, DeGent is not going to wait for this guy. But DeMarkey burned another match, getting back on. And um, yeah, won, won that next uh, that KOM. And that's where we started to see Sagan suffering a little bit. He was bopping off the back a little bit. So, so after that little mishap on the descent, you could tell that they were absolutely committed to going to the line from there. And that was kind of funny, yeah, that mishap, because like DeGent just kept going. Like, yeah, when, that, when I mean, he are overshot, you going to wait for a guy? I mean, no, but then like there was, there was a guy that, in that situation. No, exactly right. There was that funny bit where they were both like 200 meters apart and they were sort of riding and you could see. And finally, DeGent was like, okay, I better wait for him. Like, it makes more sense to wait. And then when they got back together, he was like, what are you doing? And he's like, ah. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, I have to say he, he, he gave it a little stick there, but then thought the better yeah. of it. And that probably helped him hang on for, for the win. 100%. We'll 100%. Turned out to be a smart move. <clears throat> yeah. And yeah, and very interesting at that point was EF started to take over. And they were really driving it along with, with Astana, putting a lot of sprinters, Sagan, Matthews, in, in, yeah. in jeopardy. Yeah, they were... And I didn't quite understand what they, were, what they were trying to accomplish there. But then, like, all, everybody stopped, like, oh, gosh, what happened with, with uh, Garrett Thomas's crash on that descent? Mm. And that was... I, I had turned away from the the TV just for a second to let my dogs out. And when I came back, there was just that image of that beautiful Pinarello F12 snapped in half. Yeah, that bike and, was completely <laughs> obliterated. Yeah, I, he must have hit something hard. But that the calmness and the technique in which Ineos was able to bring Thomas back up to the group was was impressive. I mean, obviously... G had to have those ha- had to have great legs to be able to do that, mm. but you saw no one panicked. They they did what they could do. Uh, you know, Thomas got back into the cars, and that was not a very easy point of the race to do that. That was going up that that last little steep little berg, and I think everyone in at Team Ineos just breathed the real sigh of relief there because you, you never want to see a rider, a GC rider, defending champion kind of lose time because of a crash like that but the race was on so no one was waiting for him but then it just seemed like maybe ef went a little bit too hard because there was a little bit of a um a stalemate and maybe it was because they knew that garrett was off the back and decided hey we we don't want to piss these guys off too much but it's interesting there too because mike woods also came down in that crash and as you saw ineos with five guys chasing back you then saw mike woods by himself on the side of the road with a mechanical, no teammates back. So to give oh, like no. a contrast between, you know, now he's out of the overall completely. I'm, 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 the results I've got only go back to 56th place at the moment. Um, and he's not, he's not there, I don't think. So he lost time today. Oh. And um, so that's like, an, like that's, a, that's a kind of a, an interesting comparison there, right? Between Ineos, totally controlled, totally calm. The guys were instantly back there with him versus EF who was still riding. You know what I mean? Simon Clark was still yeah. on the front into the bottom of that climb when Woods had been dropped. So interesting, uh, interesting that 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 moment there. And then, as you said, when they hit that climb, like I don't know, like you said, if they waited, but it was also weird too because Astana all of a sudden put Lutsenko on the front at that point, which that, that's who I thought they were riding for. 
So were they? I thought maybe they were. Remember this last climb at one eighty-seven and a half. This was the one with the time bonus of eight, five, and two seconds at the top. Correct. So I, I wonder, you know, were they going for that? But then it just provided the provided the perfect launch pad for Julian Alaphilippe to 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 basically almost catch uh, everyone. But well, he caught everyone but Thomas de Gent because mm. he wound up getting second in that sprint. Five second time bonus. He was only down by one second uh, at that time, or six seconds at that time on GC. So that cut. All he had to do was like finish one second up. So he was fully committed after that. But you could see he tried to do that exact same move, but this time Pinot was on his sixth, mm. like white on rice. Like he was not gonna let him go. And what a ride by those two. I mean, Bastille Day is tomorrow. What? What were these French guys like? <laughs> They're just 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 giving us a warm off up. the front four today. What what a what a great display of two strong French guys just tooling it on the front. Man, and they and, they, they yeah. earned that, didn't they? Like when when uh, Alaphilippe went, you kind of knew that that was he was probably going to do that because he needed the he needed the seconds to get uh, the jersey. He was one second off the jersey um, with those time bonus seconds, and it looked like they were probably going to get caught. You know, they only had sort of maybe nine, 10 seconds at the top of that climb. But they just went for it. They just put their head down and just went for it. And uh, it's a great show of tenacity. And it just shows you too, mate, in the Tour de France and in bike racing, you can flip the race on its head. And those that, yeah. that 20 seconds that uh, the Pinot gained just here, that might be that might be the win. That might be uh, what, what puts him on the jersey. That's massive. Mm. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, that, that pops him right into, I think, third in GC. So yeah. the last time that you saw on Bastille Day, which is tomorrow, mm -hmm. a Frenchman in the yellow jersey and another compatriot in third, I, I, I think we'd have to go back quite a while to, to see when that happened last. But yeah, getting, getting to, the, getting to that, that final, mm. right? Like if that was a downhill or flat final, I think the group would have rolled them. Yep. But as you say, there was even two or three more snacks left on the on the buffet line when <laughs> in in those last couple k's, and those guys were just putting, you know, ripping the crank off the pedal and just totally committed. And it was great to see Julian come out again in the yellow jersey. And you know, before we go any further there, though, my standout performance, bar none, was Thomas Degen. Yeah, that was so impressive to get in that group number one to drive that group number two and then to hold on with that lumpy finish with two very motivated French guys chasing him. He just, he was on. It was one of those special days I think that he'll remember forever. And, you know, he's the breakaway guru. But to, on that sort of finish with that, I guess, uh, impetus of the chase behind him, for him to hang on, never duck his head down and just drive all the way to the finish by far that was my yeah my uh, ride of the day yeah like putting time into those like after that that final climb he was able to put time back into Alaphilippe and uh and Pinot for a brief period there um which was like insane and there was a great line from Mike Keenan uh one of the commentators uh, an Aussie commentator that's that's commentating on the footage that I watched and he said at the beginning of the day, DeGent started with a blank 200-kilometer canvas, and he has done a Picasso performance. There you go, Mike wow. Keenan. I reckon uh, nice. I was like, that's going down. That's going down in the pod. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, my, my pick for the day was Sagan, mm -hmm. and he was swinging off the back a little bit. I think a little bit of that was a 
playing with the sprinters a little bit, but you know, Michael Matthews, wow. Like, okay. He had a very disappointing sprint yesterday. Mm -hmm. They weren't going for the win today, but man, he looked pretty snappy there at the end of that race. Like he must be in pretty darn condition. I just hope that, you know, he can put it together when, when the, the victory is actually on the line, because that's twice now that he's won that bunch kick, if you will, yeah. with Julian up the road already <laughs> and, you know, not going for the, for the number one prize. Absolutely. So, and, and they had Chad Hager uh, rode most of the day on the front early on, like an animal as well, holding that, that, that quartet at, uh, at uh, one minute, uh, at three minutes, sorry. So yeah, he's, they're, they're putting guys behind him, but he just needs to just get that, uh, the right combination. Let's, uh, we got the super fan here. Should we uh, go and have, a, have a, uh, a chat to him? He's going to introduce us to our today's theme, Swannies or Swanyers. It's time for Superfan. Hi. Hi. Thomas DeGent, what a motor. Man, seen it over and over over the years, but tonight, today was beautiful. Uh, for me, though, Pino's performance was pretty terrific. Uh, and I know I'm not alone when I say this, but Julian Alaphilippe, oh, no one looks as good out there, out of the saddle, thrashing away than that guy. Um, and today, like... The back and forth with him and Pino, Pino just fighting so hard to stay on the wheel. Alaphilippe just looks so smooth out of the saddle. It's just so much style for a man with a goatee. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, let's see. How about Alessandro DeMarchi? You know, what do you think he's thinking tonight? He's Is he kicking himself a little bit? I mean, if he'd have just managed to hang on a little bit longer, maybe he could have recovered and made it to the line with the Ghent. Um <laughs> So, you know, I got to I got to think he's he's pretty bummed to watch uh, his breakaway companion survive and succeed. Um, but I want to move along and talk a little bit about uh, Swanyers, because I bet his Swanyer is uh, hearing about it on the table tonight. Um, you know, these guys, they do so much work with massage and physio, but I'm curious about you know, them as therapists a little bit. Are they, you know, doing some psychological rebuilding as well as like massage and physio work? I mean, do they become like, you know, counselors a little bit while you're laying on the table? Or is it a little bit more of a, you know, this day and age, there's sports psychologists along with the team. But I figure back in the day, it used to be a little different. Tell me what, uh, tell me just a little bit about what these guys do other than massage. Great question. I don't think that, the normal fan really understands the Swiss army knife of abilities that the Swaniers have. These guys and gals give everything, everything they have to the riders. They're up at the crack of dawn. They're preparing bottles. They're wrapping up the food. They're driving you to the race. They're, you know, putting the bottles on the bike. They're then driving to the feed zone where they sit in the hot sun or the the, the cold rain all day waiting for you guys to come by, for the riders to come by. Then they have to haul over to the finish line to get there before the, the race gets there. And if you've ever been in one of those caravan, Swanier caravans going from the feed zone to the finish, it's, it's scary because they, most of the time they do have an escort of some sort, but they they are putting the pedal to the metal because the worst thing is that they get lost and you know get to the finish after the riders do because the riders are expecting them to be there with their warm jersey with their 
recovery drink with their um, water bottle, what, whatever they give them after the finish. And then, you know, the riders, they're done for the day once they see the Swaniers at the finish line, right? But then that's really just when the day starts for these guys, these guys and gals. Then it's drive to the hotel, get into the hotel, boom, first massage, second massage, third massage. Hopefully in the Tour de France, they have enough soigneurs where they're only doing two massages. But you're absolutely right. There's, okay, there's the, the massage, the relaxation. But a lot of the times, these guys and gals are hearing every detail of the race. So they have to be a little bit like a shrink. And they have to stay neutral and keep them calm, build their confidence. Because I'll, I'll admit it, I've been around cycling most of my life. And when you're tired, you're vulnerable. And that, mo- that hour or 45 minutes to an hour that you're on the table, you really confide in that person. And yeah, they have to be a little bit more like a psychologist. And then once, once the massage is over... Then they have to start prepping for the next day. So it is just amazing the energy that these people have. They always have a smile on their face. They're always there for you. You ask them to do anything, and they're, they're on it right away. So it's the, one of the hardest jobs, if not the hardest job, in cycling. I mean, we say that about director sportifs and riders, but the Swaniers, they're, they're the unsung, unsung heroes of this and what, what makes cycling happen. So you mentioned the finish line and you always see this one is like the first person that meets the winner, you know, and gives them a giant hug and is crying with the winner. And it's always a pretty dramatic shot. I mean, talk about the bond that some of these star riders have with certain Swaniers. I imagine, I mean, do they, do they take them between teams? Like sometimes the mechanics kind of get dragged along between teams. Is it one of those situations or, um, yeah, just talk about the psychological bond, I think you. Yeah, if you're a big enough rider, you can definitely put in your contract that you want a mechanic, you want a soigneur, even you want a director sportif. But that's the beautiful thing about these guys is they just love doing what they're doing. Regardless, if there's somebody with their same jersey crossing the line first, regardless who it is, they are ecstatic. And I think that's always a really cool photo that... Um, I, you got to wonder if they, they collect those photos because, like I said, they're, they're behind the scenes. But on that one moment when the rider comes across the line and greets his soigneur and celebrates, that's got to be a very special moment for that soigneur. Um, and normally, normally at the finish, there's the, the head soigneur is the one that's standing there. But it, it's, it's got to be a phenomenal moment to share with that person and you just got to wonder if if they kind of keep a separate little catalog of those special days and special moments with uh throughout their career yeah this one is uh the linchpin in cycling i know that uh that was sometimes my, my hour on the on the massage table each day what i liked most about it was it was like one of the opportunities where you just didn't have to talk bikes and you could just like you know you could just kind of not have to be in that pressure cooker environment let's let's kind of go on to talk about oh yeah let let me say one more thing about that and i want the young riders out there to listen that that hour spent on the massage table needs to be quiet 
Don't go in there with your phone. Don't have the TV on. Just switch off. Just totally mm. switch off. I see so many guys now, they go on the massage table and they're not really relaxing. They're, they're talking on the phone. They're, they're tweeting. They're on Instagram. They're watching TV. Turn off the bike race. Turn on some you know, nice calming music and just chill. That's the only hour of the day uh, that you're awake that you have to yourself. But yeah, not, not everyone's like that. I, was, I didn't like to talk too much during my massage either. And I think the, the soigneur knows who likes to talk and who doesn't. But man, that, that was pure meditation for me. If I was on the table, the, I, I didn't like the, the TV being on. I didn't like talking too much. And I definitely didn't, didn't spend time on my phone because I think you really need to just switch off and chill. Do you have a, or did you have like a, a favorite Swanee in your career? Someone who like you, you worked with a lot or that you, that you particularly yes, liked? Yes, I did. And I think throughout your career, you kind of come up with the podium of Swanneers, <laughs> the podium of mechanics, the podium of director sportifs that just really made that difference. And for me, it was an Australian woman named Robin Taylor. She worked with us at CSC in 2004 and 2005, and she was the best. And, you know, these, these people have lives as well, right? Like they, they don't get paid the same salary as, as the riders do. And, you know, as a woman, she wanted to, to move on and get married and, and start a family and get into equestrian riding. So, yeah, she moved on in 2006, Mm. And that was, I had great years in 2004 and 2005 because she always had my back. She always knew what I needed. She'd pull out the little um, acupuncture needles from time to time. She could just feel it. But in 2006, I was, I was kind of lost without her. And yes, I was getting older and just had our second child. So my focus wasn't there. But I really look back at it and say that, those two years were the best years because I had someone like Robin Taylor t taking care of me. And that's it, right? Like the Swannies are so much more than just like they, they become a part of the team, like the fabric of a team and they become like the character of a team. And I like they, they're, they're responsible as much for your performance, you know, as a good director and a good um, mechanic and all of that, right? Like their influence can, can make or break a team. 100%. I agree. 100%. And each in one, each and every one of these men and women should be just knighted for what they do for, for everyone. Yeah, man. I, uh, I, I remember, uh, we had a, a Swanee that was in the team, uh, when I, the, the last time I was racing with Jelly Belly and she, she left the team. Um, and I, it changed everything as well. Same thing. So yeah. Um, what about like, the Swannies nowadays, and, and we've got um, and, uh, Therese, uh, who is, is coming on the show a bit later on, their job, like, they're experts, right? They have to be experts. Like, a lot of them are qualified um, massage, qualified physio, and they have to kind of do all this other stuff too. So, like, has the game, like, along with the rest of cycling, what I'm trying to get at is, like, you know, it's all become marginal gains. It's all become that 0.1 of a percent. Have the Swannies in it? had to up their game as well and 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 how are we seeing them do that oh a hundred percent i think back in the day 
soigneurs would basically just rub your legs and then oddly enough quite a few of them would come around in the morning and actually rub chamois cream <laughs> on your shorts i always felt that that was kind of weird did you that ever have that happen to you personal thing did someone did you have i did there was there was a one one guy on team Kel, uh, team telecom his name was ola a very, very nice old German gentleman, didn't speak a word of English, so I never really got to talk to him, never really got to know him. But this gentleman, before every stage of every race that I was at with him, he would knock on the door and basically just have a hand, uh, like a, a jar of chamois cream in his hand. And I didn't really understand what he wanted the first time he knocked on my door. And he, he kind of with hand signals said, you know, give me your shorts. And then he takes my shorts, he turns them inside out, and he just starts slathering all this chamois cream on, on the chamois of my shorts. And my German roommate, I'm like, is this normal? And he was like, oh, yeah, this, this is like, there's a technique to this. So, so that was, that, th there was a technique. <laughs> and man, he took pride in that. And I know that... Guys like Eric Zabel and Vinokurov, they really appreciated that. But for me, I was more of a self-application sort of guy, preferably. <laughs> that is, uh, well, that's, that's service. That's, that's one way of taking the, the Swanee role to another level. I was never uh, in, in a position to, uh, to experience that. Thankfully, I think, thankfully. Um, what about like... Uh, like um, like technology, what what are we seeing? Like any tech that uh, that Swannies are bringing, you know, with the massage and that sort of stuff. Like I know we've talked about Normatech boots and stuff for recovery. Is there anything else that they they kind of employ? Yeah, you're right. I, I just noticed that I didn't really answer your question. No, they they have to up their game every year. Yep. And some teams, and these are this is a very wise investment when you think about it. They actually have a budget for Swanniers to actually upskill themselves. So of course they're paid per race or salaried throughout the year, but then there's certain teams that are like, we have a little bit of money set aside. So if you give us a, if there's a course that you wanna to take to get certified in, in something, you know, present it to us like, as you would a business plan, let us know the price. And a lot of the times, certain teams will actually invest in making their, their Swannies better. Really? So absolutely. They're, 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 they're so, have to be so in the know of all this stuff. And it is complicated. And you have to go and get certified a lot of this stuff. But yes, so many different little tricks. And you see them coming in. And a lot of the times, a soigneur will actually kind of attract certain riders to their table mm -hmm. because of that certain little gizmo or gadget or technique that they're using. Because, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the new thing on the block, you always want to try it to see if it works, to see if it makes a difference, to see if it works for you. Yeah. So I've seen so many different techniques. Um, and yeah, I think everyone is very curious and that soigneur is, is very popular until people decide if it works for them or or not. What about the wackiest, but, like, you know, kind of uh, use of like, you know, healing or use of technology, whether it be like, I've heard some stories of like, um, of, of Swannies that have like employed all sorts of weird, like energy healing and, and things like that. Um, any kind of, anyone brought any really left of field uh, techniques to, to the table when you've been on there? I'd have to go back to the years that I was on Kofidis mm -hmm. and we had a, 
Polish soigneur named Bob. And this guy still lives in Nice, and so I used to see him all the time. He rides his bike without a helmet, <laughs> unfortunately, all the time in, on those roads. But he was, this was 1998, it was during the tour, that he started this technique, which now we know is as cupping. Yep. So, like, he would burn, like, a little flammable liquid in this glass bulb and then heat it up and then put it on your spine. And I thought that was really weird, and it left some really weird marks. And, yeah, I, I didn't really get into it, but that was, what, you know, quite a while ago. And he was already on to that. Yeah. But I've seen a bunch of different machines that are supposed to, you know, go in and, you know, release the muscle fascia and, and whatnot. But I haven't been on the, on the table in a long time. But that's another really interesting thing is you kind of go to the soigneur who has the most comfortable table. <laughs> and a lot of these soigneurs, at least back in the day, now I think the, the budgets for these teams actually have a um you know the table for the team yeah. but in america we had evidently the best massage tables so <laughs> one by one i think i delivered hand delivered probably eight massage tables when i would come back for the winter break or if i'd come back for a break to the u.s i'd have to get a massage table and bring it back to a soigneur oh, really? and they would keep it for forever because it was just a little bit different, you know, instead of that rackety, rickety, rackety, old iron, un totally uncomfortable one, they had the one with the headrest, and it, you could adjust the height up and down. It was, it was, I guess it was the bomb. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's true. Um, should we, we've got uh, Therese, speaking of, um, of, uh, of Swannies, we have our interview for the day with Therese Sundstrom. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Really well, really well. You've Worked, you've been working with athletes for 12 years, um, Swannies with teams like WTN, uh, Rota. You've got a fair bit of experience. You, work, you, you live here in Girona and, uh, and look, look after most of the, um, or a lot of the, the pro bike riders who live around here. Firstly, like we've, as we've just been discussing much of this show, the, the Swannies are uh, the unsung heroes and, and probably also the, uh, in my opinion at least, the, the sanctuary on the team. How did you end up? How do you end up as a uh, in this role and doing what you do? Well, I started off working at clinics, so I worked back in Stockholm for a bunch of years before I decided that I wanted to do something else and also work a lot more within the sport. So I ended up moving to Girona, where I opened up my own clinic and mainly worked on pro cyclists and triathletes, but also, of course, tourists and people coming in to Girona for training. But my clients that comes back regularly were the, were the pro athletes, the pro cyclists. So that's how I got into like eventually getting hired as a Swanee as well. And as a Swanee, what does a day look like, you know, from the moment you kind of wake up? Like it's a pretty, it's obviously a full on job. What, can you kind of talk us through that? Absolutely. Like, it depends on how many Swannies are on the race that you're at. I've been by myself. I've had other Swannies. We've had to help the mechanics sometimes if they're low on staff. But from the beginning of the morning, you make sure that the bottles are filled up with water. You make sure that the race food has been done and prepared. You prepare um, feed zone bags if you need to, ice bags. Um, if it's hot, 
outside, then you need to make sure that the weather is, yeah, you need to help the riders out with the weather, so to speak. Like, make sure that you have the, like, the rain clothes if they need that and so on. So, um, before the race, you make sure that their legs are prepared if they want a quick rub before. It all depends on the race and what the riders want because they all want different things. So, and is that the hardest part of the job? Like, being a like having to cater for the individual riders needs because you know let's face it like athletes and professional athletes are probably some of the most selfish people on earth like it's it's a requirement of their job and often the swan is on the receiving end of that right so you, you you're you're kind of expected to cater for all these these riders individual needs exactly and that's you need to do that they need to do what they need to do to win or to do their job that day. So you just try to be there and help them to be able to perform. So if they ask you to do something, you try to make yeah the best out of it and help them with your yeah with all your possible experience mm-hmm. or uh, availability. What's the most difficult part of the job? I think it's balancing your own sleep with uh, making sure that everything's done and to make sure that everyone has what they need. When you're at a race, it's just full gas, so you don't even think about it that much. You just do and try to make the best of it. That, that would be my question to you, is swaneurs are constantly giving their ener- energy away, constantly trying to give your energy to the riders. What do you do throughout the race to kind of get that energy back? Because it can't be a one-way street. Do you go... I don't know, go running in the morning or meditate at night? What, what, what is a trick that you use to kind of keep yourself on the, on the level instead of dealing with all these crazy concerns and desires from, you know, like, like Gus said, some pretty selfish people? Well, I try to go running in the mornings. It depends on also the weather for that matter and where you're at because it's quite hard to figure out routes around where you where you stay because not every ho- every hotel has a good surrounding. Um, for example, in California, I went out running, but there was no lights around. So I basically ran in the dark um, for 2K and then just headed back on the <laughs> very dark road. But um I try to do some physical activity myself, but also if that drains me too much for what I have to do that day, I'd rather skip it and be able to perform better. And then just kind of keeping the, yeah, having a good laugh and just laugh with your coworkers and make the best of it and just make sure that you have fun. That's basically how we keep energy up. Sure to not forget to eat ourselves, but yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much, Therese. Uh, Appreciate you coming on the show and fantastic uh, insight into what's required to be the heroes of the sport, in my opinion. I think um, the Swanee, rightfully so, has a place in the foundation of cycling, and, uh, and I think that we should all celebrate that. Thank you very much, Tess. Have a great day. Bye. Nice one. That was a fantastic interview there, um, and great little insight into what it takes to uh, keep the show on the road. Bobby, let's uh, talk about tomorrow. Tomorrow, Stage 9, Bastille Day. So... Hold on, the French boys are going to be lighting it up, I'm sure. So Saint-Étienne to Brode, 170.5 kilometers with a 10K neutral. 32 riders, French riders, have won on Bastille Day before, so you know they're going to be motivated. 
And the finish is actually in Bardet's hometown. So I don't know if it's the stage for him, but uh, I think... I think there's going to be some action from the French guys' side. But it's another very tough day in the Massif Central. We have a Cat 1, which is at 36.5. It's not that long, but it's average of 11%. So 3.2 kilometers at 11%. So not, not, not too long, but very, very steep. And at the beginning of the race, on a, after a day like today, could, could be tricky. Mm. And also, a it's, it kind of drags after that too, right? So... Once they get up on top, they're they're actually on a plateau for a while. So if you if you dropped there, you're not you're not going to have an easy downhill to get back on. Yeah, yeah. And then we have the sprint at seventy eight point five, and then two more category three snacks, <laughs> um, leading into the finish. And that one last cat three climb comes only thirteen k from the end. And it, again, has that little time bonus uh, carrot at the top. So are we going to see Philippe <laughs> for the third time drop the hammer and go for that time bonus? Um, I don't think so. I think it's going to be a sprint finish. And for tomorrow, my pick is Michael Matthews from the Sunweb team. Yeah, Michael Matthews is a, is a, uh, is a good pick. And, and by the looks of things, he, uh, he didn't overeat today. He was uh, not too many. He, he hasn't had his fill of snacks yet, and that's a good thing because there's plenty of those coming up tomorrow. I'm going to go with Trenton again. Trenton was, uh, he was there in the finish today, kind of. Um, you know, hopefully he'll be sniffing around again tomorrow. And that's the show. Bobby, as always, an absolute pleasure. Uh, thanks for tuning in to our fans. Uh, thank you very much. We've got the best fans in the world. And uh, we've got the best pod in the world as well, just as a matter of fact. Uh, you can tune in at iTunes. You can subscribe there. Uh, check us out on Velo News Voices on Twitter. And VeloNews.com uh, is the website where you can get uh, our show, some information about it, and all of your cycling needs. Until tomorrow, Bobby. Thank you so much. Thanks, Gus. Thanks, all the listeners out there. And don't forget to put your socks on. Inspired by the fabled jerseys of the Tour, Road ID has rolled out a limited edition Tour de France wrist ID. Unlike any other IDs in their lineup, this incredible ID comes with four interchangeable bands, yellow, polka dot, green, and white. This is a $50 value, available in limited quantities for only $34.99. Head on over to roadid.com slash tdfband to get yours before they run out.